The year was 1956. Abigail Van Buren, known as Dear Abby, her advice column first appears in newspapers. Heartbreak Hotel is recorded by Elvis. Little Richard releases Tutti Frutti. Martin Luther King Jr.'s home was bombed. The first nonstop transcontinental helicopter flight arrived in Washington, D.C. Mickey Mantle's home run just misses clearing Yankee Stadium's roof. Dr. Albert Sabin discovers oral polio vaccine. And get this, the Dow Jones closes 500 for the first time. Now, so far this week, the Dow closed over 24,000. And the first video recording on magnetic tape televised coast to coast. And one more 1956 happening. The Price is Right television show debuts on NBC. But even more exciting than all those things, Gary Mays was born in October of 1956. Gary is our guest today. He's the former executive pastor of ministry coaching at Broadmoor Baptist Church in Madison, Mississippi, where he and his wife, Kathy, live. He also consults churches, ministries, leads conferences, and coaches leaders. Together, he and Kathy have two grown and married children. Gary, welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. Thank you so much, Byron. I am just delighted to be with you today. Do I understand right that you were actually born in Columbus, Mississippi? Well, no, sir. I was actually born in Newfoundland, Canada. Uh, So you're Canadian, eh? Well, eh? uh, Don't (laughs) you know? I have dual citizenship. My dad was an officer in the United States Air Force. He was stationed there. So from the Canadian point of view, I have dual citizenship. We actually, I think back in the day, you declared citizenship by 18. We did that. Uh, I am fully American. Although I don't have this trajectory, I think I'm still qualified to be president. (laughs) If you ever want to go back and become the president of Canada, you can do that? Or are you talking about the president of the U.S.? Uh, Byron, i got options. Oh, you got options here. Yeah, leave your options open always, Gary. If nominated, I'm not going to run. If elected, I'm not going to serve. So <laughs> it's not a problem, really, for me. My mom and dad from Denver originally, Byron, and had lived all over, as you can imagine, in Air Force life. They requested a transfer to someplace warm, like Florida or California. So the United States government, in their wisdom and God's sovereignty, sent us to Columbus, Mississippi. <laughs> And uh, 1958, my folks were wondering if it even had running water. They had never been in Mississippi. My older brother graduated from high school. My older sister was a junior. We lived in Aberdeen, Mississippi for a year. My sister fell in love, got married right after high school graduation to the man she is still married to nearly 60 years later. And my older brother was killed in a car accident his freshman year at Mississippi State, majoring in aeronautical engineering. So the long story made short, my family put down roots. We stayed in Mississippi. I'm a Mississippi guy with Midwestern roots. Well, Mississippi is a fantastic state. Love our listeners in Mississippi. We have plenty of them. Our signal actually here from Memphis on AM640, being a powerful 50,000-watt signal, reaches into northern part of Jackson, Mississippi. I don't know if you've been able to pick up the signal or not, but we've had some calls from that area before. Oh, that's awesome. You have a great show. I know some about uh, your station and the Bot Radio Network, and I love what you do and who you are, and I'm really honored to be with you today. Well, Gary, you and I were talking recently. We have a mutual friend, your son. Your son, Josh Mays, is the worship pastor at my church, High Point Church in Memphis. We uh, had the opportunity, you and I, to have some uh, conversation as you have been actually leading a series at High Point over the past few Sundays. That's right. I uh, began kind of a standalone foundational truth about 
who you love and pursue, looking for meaning in life, and ultimately, of course, leading to Christ. Two weeks ago, and then this last Sunday, I began the first of four messages in the book of Ephesians, which, of course, that's like glancing a rock off the top of the pond there. I mean, it's incredibly deep, and we'll gain some, uh, by God's grace, some insights over these four weeks. I am so thrilled to be at High Point, so grateful for the ministry and the church family it is to my son Josh and his wife Stacy, and really looking forward to the next three weeks. Well, one of the things I want to talk about is this cultural shift that we find ourselves in. And the term urbanization refers to the population shift from rural to urban residency. Now, for many people, cities represent a world of new opportunities, including jobs. There's that powerful link between urbanization and economic growth. Around the world, towns and cities, I understand, are responsible for over 80 percent of gross national product. So what happened to the family farm, Gary? Cows are not producing enough milk. Chickens not laying enough eggs. Seems to have caused people to sell their farms, move to the city, and seek new ways of life. And this is kind of a post-World War II era we're talking about. Well, in large measure, the Industrial Revolution, and then in another benchmark in our nation's history, World War II. You know, in the beginning of this country, maybe one in 20 people lived in what at the time would have been considered urban or cityscape. Uh, By the 2000s, four out of five Americans, even with the expansion throughout the 48 states, the continental U.S., four out of five live in urban areas, and those numbers are just going to rise. 81% or more of Americans live in urban areas. Yeah, this isn't just a turn-of-the-century change in dynamic we're seeing. I was talking just to our general manager, Todd Payne, the other day, who grew up in Bolivar, Tennessee, and he told me recently that a majority of his high school classmates have moved away from Bolivar, you know, to settle in other places. So this trend is really still working very hard. Well, it certainly is. We think in Mississippi about the number of smaller towns, county seat towns, uh, places that were kind of the bastions of growth and community. Many of those towns, uh, and this is everything that we're doing today on my end, Byron, is broad brush, but my experience and observation has been that many of those towns are really drying up. The conglomeration of resources, opportunities, entertainment, education, businesses are locating where there is a broader array of educational and entertainment opportunities. So the local plants and the mills, when possible, when there are buyouts or issues at play that bring change about, they're opting for cities as well. And a lot of these towns that revolved around the garment factory or the place that made auto parts or uh, made shirts or whatever, they're moving into the cities in unprecedented numbers. It really, in this country, the cultural shift of urbanization happens simultaneously with three or four other major cultural moves around World War II. Pre-World War II, I'm, I'm going to launch into this and just jump on me here. What we want to do, too, for our listeners is kind of talk about this as it relates to parents raising their children and how this cultural shift has really affected raising children. That's right. It's affected everything. And subtly, the agenda, the schedule of life, the way we maintain our families, many of our values have shifted with some cultural shifts over the last 75 years or so. We're not even aware of it because we're in it. As Robbie Zacharias says it's like 
asking a fish to describe water. You don't know. Well, you know, it's interesting, Gary, when you and I were kids, our role was much more in the background compared to today's generation. You weren't supposed to speak until you were spoken to. You didn't have a choice of what you ate. Mom cooked it and you ate it or you went to bed without food. Or if you were lucky enough to go out to eat, mom or dad just ordered what you were going to eat. There was a time when kids would never refer to an adult by their first names. It was, hello, Mr. Smith. Thank you, Mrs. Jones. And our culture today seems to lean more toward being kid-centric. That's right. I personally think, and I think the research shows, a number of authors, some of whom I will recommend here in a couple of minutes, uh, describes that kid-centric shift uh, because we have a situation, and I, I'm going to jump to the end of the moment here and give a phrase, and then I, if you give me a minute, I'd like to back up and talk about the shift. But I believe we functionally in our culture warehouse our children. The better word for it might be hothouse. Uh, instead of raising those tomatoes in a rural garden, we're hothousing them now in mass. And it's just, it's a different world than when we grew up. At the end of the day, for your listeners, Byron, it is really about inculcating the biblical values of loving Christ, loving others, making a difference in the world by making disciples. Gary, foundationally, making disciples begins in the home with your kids. The Shema, I mean, when you go to Deuteronomy 6, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all that you have. And then in your coming in, you're going out, you're getting up and you're lying down uh, on your foreheads over the door frames of your house. You impart this, you press this, the scripture says, NIV, impress this upon your children. And Gary, this is still going on today in Israel. I just returned recently from our inaugural Bite Radio Network trip to Israel, and I saw young dads with their yarmulke carrying the Torah in their arms, and they had their prayer shawl, they had their tassels coming out from their shirt, they had stair step behind them, their sons, three sons behind this one man. I'll never forget the image there. So he's leading his children to temple, he's leading their children to learn the Torah, leading the kids to memorize God's Word. Wow, what a powerful word picture there. Yeah, well, there are so many dynamics there that have changed. Uh, I think many in our culture expect the church as an institution to do those very things. We've abdicated some parental responsibility. Uh, There are reasons for our busyness, but at the end of the day, and I've said this uh, as a challenge that I didn't realize was strong of a challenge as it was, but at the end of the day, every parent is discipling their kids to someone or something. They are teaching their children who and what to love. So if you've got a family who is, I'm not going to pick on anybody here today, but uh, just randomly, if I'm in Mississippi, if you're an old Miss family, by practice, by branding in the home, by trips and discretionary income, by what you watch and what you love, you tend to imprint on your children a love for old Miss. It's generational. And it's nothing new. It's exactly what God said we ought to do as parents by impressing who we love with all of our heart on our children in every venue of life. What a great example. 
And, you know, Gary, as we look at the advancements, you know, we can see such great things that we get to take advantage of today as you look at post-World War II era, which brought in some amazing technology in itself during that period of time. But when we talk about communications, most people had in their homes radios. Television existed, but they were generally very expensive, and the programming options were not very many at all. And then this television explosion happened in popularity back in the 1950s so people could really start watching important events all over the world as they happen in real time. That's right. I I mean, I grew up with every space shot being central to my home. I mean, that was that was what we were going to sit down and watch. We watched history unfold. Um, Pre-World War II, not just media and communications, but when you think about how rural the United States was, statistically, compared to today. And this is broad brush again, but many people lived on the family farm or small communities, rural gatherings. Uh, They may help on the family farm. If the family didn't have a farm, it probably had a garden. Or you helped in the family business, if that's what your family did. And although it wasn't true for everybody in every urban area, generally speaking, that was the pace of life and the model for how children had been raised for thousands of years. Also, education. Pre-World War II, I'm going to use the cliche, it's overstated here, if I can broad brush for a minute, but the picture of the one-room schoolhouse or the small, rather modest school facility that reflected the dominant values of the culture, that was common. Uh, I know I did some research and you know, depending on the values or the most persuasive argument in a community, some communities pre-World War II, certainly around the turn of the century, 1900 or so, uh, some wouldn't allow a woman to be a school teacher if she was married. Some wouldn't allow her to be a school teacher if she was single. Some, if they were married and they were pregnant, which you would never say out loud, by the way, they wouldn't allow her to teach school. Some had men and didn't want women at all. It was a really interesting yet uh, insightful look at the dominant values of the culture in the area of education. Uh, Pre-World War II for travel. I heard just the other day, uh, you watch TV on the 4th of July at all, Byron? You know, I think I was busy out on the grill this year, Gary. That a boy. <laughs> well, while I was grilling, honestly, I had the story of us on the History Channel in the background. And... I heard them say that uh, prior to Henry Ford, the average family in the United States might have never traveled more than 50 miles in their lifetime. Now, that's not to say that the elite or those who were wealthy didn't travel or that there weren't purposes for others, but most people in the United States, you were limited by transportation. So you didn't do a discretionary trip. There wasn't a vacation to another part of the country. You pretty much managed the family business or the family farm. You traveled to church on Sunday. You might have gone, if you didn't live in town, you might have gone to town once a week or twice a week to the store or to pick up some supplies. But it was a fairly rural, uh, localized existence. Communication, you're absolutely right. My picture is World War II and pre-World War II. As I listened to my father, born in 1920, the family was fortunate that they could gather around uh, an RCA radio yeah. and listen to some radio show. That was that was family entertainment. It might be one serial that they listened to once or twice a week. 
that was information. There were newspapers, if you were fortunate enough to get them. Uh, but there wasn't a global awareness in real time of what was happening. If I can roll on here for just a second, Byron, if it's okay. Yeah. The World War II, America's fathers and sons and brothers and fiancés, uh, aunts and uncles too, but uh, men in particular, went to war in unprecedented numbers and by the millions. So industrial war machine ramped up. Women moved into the workplace in unprecedented numbers in the United States. Many of the big cities, also smaller communities, but the big cities, many of them, had big industries. I'm in Madison, Mississippi, and we're close to New Orleans, which made landing craft. And women were the predominant workers in a landing craft industry in New Orleans. Uh, it was a it was a change in how families operated with men away at war for extended periods of time. Education remained somewhat provincial uh, in those areas, but there was a shift during that time. At the end of World War II, America's men who might have had a high school education in, in math came home. They had been worldwide. They had seen the horrors of war, whether in the European theater or the Pacific theater. And they had been exposed to philosophy. There was a deep cynicism uh, about the innate goodness of man after seeing the atrocities and the carnage of war. And they moved home. And I think, just broad brush, thinking about my dad, there was a generation that wanted better for their children than they had. Yeah, They wanted a peaceful, productive, loving life. Uh, that was hardworking and productive, but they didn't want to go to that situation again. And about nine months after VE Day and the discharge of millions of soldiers, the baby boom began. So America had moved during World War II and then after to the cities, two government programs in the middle of this, the GI Bill. So veterans went to college in unprecedented numbers and gained a much broader and honestly, many times a non-Christian or a competing worldview. And number two, VA loans. People bought small houses in cities and took a job somewhere instead of being the job with their family. Like huge cultural shift. When I visit Josh in Memphis, we'll drive through parts of the city on our way somewhere. Memphis, like Jackson, Mississippi, in which I live, have large areas that were World War II and post-World War II era housing. And they were built with the VA loan. Those people encouraged college education with the GI Bill. TV, to your point earlier, became popularized in the mid-50s by the 60s. Most people in middle America had a TV. Did you grow up with three networks? In your TV, Byron? I think there was NBC, CBS, and ABC was the only channels, I believe. I mean, I think you had some public network possibly, too. I'm trying to remember. But for the most part, you had those three major networks. And most of your friends, I'm not sure of your age, but for me, I'm (laughs) (laughs) 61-ish. I'm working on that ish right there. But my friends, I knew they were watching Batman or the Wild Wild West at the same time I was. Yes, it was still shared culture, but it expanded over the next generation. We also had real-time information worldwide. So the Vietnam War, I mean, we could go into that, and the public perception and the war being watched in real time. 
people have now had university education, increased media, real-time exposure to news. They had travel. They had cars and vehicles were common. 1956, the interstate started. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe that there was a period of time when there was no interstates. Two-lane highways and motor ends somewhere. By the time my family vacationed in my memory at 8, 10, 12 years old, yeah. I'm in the mid-60s, and it seemed like everybody was on the road one or two weeks a year staying at the Holiday Inn somewhere. Hey, Gary, before we run out of time, there's something I think is important for us to talk about if we can. This cultural shift we're talking about and how it has impacted raising families, where was the church during all this time? That's a great question, Byron. The church, which had been the community uh, of believers who gathered in a smaller community or rural area, uh, bigger was better. Uh, churches, uh, particularly in the area of youth ministry as a given, began with youth directors, somebody who would do something with the young people, quote, and it developed into professions, appropriately, I think, for this particular developmental time in kids' lives. Now, the reality is that as active as the church was, America was still predominantly a Christian influence, uh, reverence to the things of the Bible, not that everybody were believers, but you were still likely to have the Ten Commandments posted in a school. And the, the culture was receptive to that, and the church was vibrant, in a sense. I heard an older pastor 35 years ago say, in the 50s and 60s, we could put a building up and put a cross on it, and people would come. And I can remember, too, when I was in public school, elementary school, here in the city of Memphis, we had a class chaplain that would get up and read from yeah. the Bible every morning right before we pledged the allegiance to the American flag. Absolutely. Well... Those days, of course, are gone, but they were unifying days uh, a generation, or really three generations ago, or four. Uh, kind of cutting to the chase for the show here, here's what happened. Kids pre-World War II, when families had farms or businesses, children were seen as assets. And our grandparents might have had nine kids. Seven of them lived. They lived on the farm. Congratulations, there's another arrow in your quiver. Post-World War II, particularly past baby boom, uh, when somebody announces they're having child number three or four or five, the joke is, do you know how much college is going to cost for you? What about cars? What about insurance? People go crazy like you're nuts to have that many kids because post-World War II, kids are seen as liabilities. And instead of having the opportunity to help contribute to the family, manage family life, and be productive as assets, We've had to figure out how to warehouse and keep our kids busy until they move to the next season of life, college or work time in their life. So we've created programs, structures, extracurricular, incredible amounts of entertainment activities. We keep our kids busy all the time, but we don't necessarily develop the front of the brain by giving decision-making and consequences, freedom to fail. We tend to be extreme. If we go sports, we go sports. That's for 11 months out of the year. Those days are new days compared to the history in the past. And as a result, we have kids who developmentally don't mature necessarily in the same ways, which are why sociologists say adolescents now exist at 25, 26, 27, 28 years old. And that's kind of the world we live in. We pothouse or warehouse our kids. Uh, parents aren't discipling. We're leaving that to the professionals. 
Uh, we are distracted at every turn, and we wonder why there isn't a spiritual vibrancy or fidelity in the life of our kids. Yeah, uh, it's, it's not the priority. Well, Gary, as Christian parents, and we're going to have to start wrapping this up, time is slipping away, but Christian parents, as they're moving through the maze of raising their children in today's culture, what are some lifelines that you would throw out to them or advice you might give for building a family that's really centered on Christ? The Shema, every venue of life, have the teachable moment to talk about God's presence in your life, your love for Him, and live out the values before them. It's the cliche that has truth in it. It's more caught than taught. Well, it's actually both. Number two, consistency in the body of Christ, a healthy church that teaches God's Word. It's not going to be made up of perfect people, but consistency and grace in those environments teaches kids how to, how to serve and love others, how to share their faith, and then when things go badly, it teaches them about forgiveness and grace. But it has to be done consistently, not like a consumer. There are a lot of great resources. You probably talk about them all the time, but I want to mention two real quickly. Older kids and the generation high school, college, beyond for moms and dads, Dr. Tim Elmore, awesome, nurturing the leader within your child. He is a consultant to Chick-fil-A, churches everywhere, colleges, sports teams particularly in the area of older students, helping them take responsibility and develop. And number two, just a great book I found in the last uh, year, Parenting by uh, Paul David Tripp. It's gospel principles uh, that can radically change your family. Parenting by Paul David Tripp. Great resources. Uh, Understanding why we do what we do and being consistent in our love for Christ and communicating by modeling and by speaking the Shema. Those things are critical to raising kids who uh, are mature in their faith and continue to impact and affect the world. That's a great word, Gary. I'll tell our friends, if you would like more information about Gary Mays, go to his website, GaryMays.com, GaryMays.com. There's also opportunities to have Gary come and speak to your event. Maybe you're a church looking to challenge your church leadership, and Gary has some great tools and input and can communicate very practically, great resource to rely on his ministry. After over 40 years of being in the ministry, uh, pastoring, uh, youth work, I mean, Gary, a great resource, so be sure and check out GaryMays.com. I'd like to continue our conversation. We could pick it up and talk more about this cultural shift in parenting today, and also maybe we have time to talk about dating and dating relationship if you've got time for it i would love to that's a minefield that uh, every parent has to negotiate with their kids i would be honored to do that friends we're going to say goodbye on this edition of mid-south viewpoint but i hope you'll join us next time which is tomorrow by the way for gary mays part two as we continue our conversation gary thanks for being our guest today yes sir absolutely my pleasure byron Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Don't forget, you can also go to iTunes and look up Byron Tyler Radio or Mid-South Viewpoint. Share this program with your friends, and we'll pick it up next time with Gary Mays. Hope you have a great afternoon. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.